Again, the text for this sermon will be Luke 7, the verses 18 through 23. And let's read just those verses again before the sermon. So Luke 7, beginning at verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And at that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, a few weeks from now on Sunday, February 14, at the same time actually as our worship service, There's a play that's scheduled to be performed at St. Chrysostom's Church in Manchester, England. It was written by Joe Clifford, a transgender man identifying as a woman, and it's called The Gospel According to Jesus, Queen of Heaven. The play imagines this transgender Jesus coming back to the world today, preaching sermons and giving communion. And I'm not going to describe everything that happens in that play But let me read to you what Clifford, the author himself, said about this play. He said, these are his words, As a practicing Christian myself, I have no interest in attacking the church or mocking the church or making fun of the church in any way or in any way being blasphemous or offensive. I simply want to assert very strongly, as strongly as I can, that the Jesus of the Gospels would not in any way wish to attack or denigrate people like myself. I think it's very important, he says, to get across the message that the Jesus of the Gospels would not condone or want to promote prejudice or discrimination against anybody and would try to convey a a message of compassion and love and understanding of everybody, no matter what their belief, no matter what their gender, orientation, or sexuality. So far from Clifford. What are we to make of that situation? A few weeks from now, unless the Lord comes first, while we will be here probably confessing our sins and worshiping God in His holiness, hundreds of people will be watching this play and taking away that message about the Lord Jesus in a church that bears the name of Christ and the name of one of our own church fathers, St. Chrysostom. So it raises the question, Can we make Jesus into whoever we want him to be? Can we automatically expect him to take our side, whatever cause it is that we feel committed to? Now, I don't doubt that, not for a second, we would automatically say, absolutely not. Of course you cannot do that with Jesus, and it is blasphemous to even think about it. And actually, I think that Clifford would agree with that. He kept insisting that the Jesus of the Gospels would never do this or that, would never prejudice against transsexuals, would only ever affirm them. And so it raises another question for us. How do we know that the true Lord Jesus is on our side? 
How do we know that we haven't made the same mistake that we think he has made, simply assuming that we know who he is and what his mission is with respect to our world? And take it a step further. If we're reading our Bibles with open minds and open hearts, ready to hear what God would teach us, we will discover things about the Lord that do offend our sensibilities and are hard to swallow. And what do we do then? It's clear from our text that John the Baptist actually struggled with this question as well. We might not have expected that. Uncertainty and doubt, they don't strike us as part of, as as a characteristic of John the Baptist, that strong wilderness prophet who called the Pharisees a brood of vipers, who warned everyone with such strong language to repent before the kingdom of God comes. This was the prophet, after all, who saw Jesus and shouted, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. It's hard to imagine how such a bold and fearless prophet could struggle with doubts. But in our text, he sends messengers to Jesus with this humble question that's just trembling with uncertainty and questions. He says, Are you the one who is to come? Or do we look for another? So that's the question that we'll consider together this morning. I've summarized the message with this theme. The promised Savior has come. Blessed is the one who is not offended by him. And so we'll see first the sincere doubts of John the Baptist. Then in the Lord Jesus' answer in verses 22 and 23. The certain truth concerning Jesus Christ And then finally, if what our Lord says is true, also the very serious conclusion that every one of us must make. The scene opens up with the disciples of John. In verse 18, the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. Now the things referred to here are presumably the events that just came before in the earlier parts of the chapter. In verses 1 through 10, Jesus healed a centurion's servant. And then in verses 11 to 17, that's the text we also read, he raises a widow's son from the dead. And we read then in verse 16 that fear came upon all and they glorified God, saying a great prophet has risen up among us and God has visited his people. And then it says this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding area. So those are the things that John's disciples reported to him. And that probably includes not just the miracles themselves, but also the response of the people to those things that uh, that had happened and the things that they were beginning to say about the Lord Jesus. And that triggers a response from John. And we should wonder, why does John respond the way that he does to those kinds of reports? We're very familiar with the story of John the Baptist, so we might expect him instead to say, yes, the people are finally getting it. They finally believe that he is the one that God has sent. But John doesn't respond that way. Instead, he sends messengers to Jesus to ask him, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, Why would John ask that after hearing what he heard? 
One explanation that some people give is that, well, maybe John hadn't yet believed in Jesus. And then they read this as an excited question. Could it possibly be that Jesus, of all people, was the man I was prophesying about? John would then be considering for the very first time that Jesus was the promised Messiah. The problem with that view, though, is that we know from chapter 3 that Jesus was baptized by John, and then the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit came down in the form of of a dove, and a voice was heard saying, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And John would have been there to hear all of that. And we know from other Gospels that John specifically pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So it's hard to imagine that that's what's going on here, that John hadn't yet believed in the Lord Jesus. A more likely explanation for what John, for his questions, what he asks here, can be found in the kinds of things that John had said about the one who was coming after him. And we can find that in chapter 3. In chapter, Luke, Luke chapter 3, verse 15 you find actually a very similar question to the one that John himself is asking. But there, it's the people asking that question about John. Is he the coming one? Chapter 3, verse 15. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, then John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one, is, one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. And here's what I believe is the reason now why John later got confused about Jesus. He says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan, it's like a pitchfork, is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Well, what does this have to do with John's doubts in chapter 7? Simply this, the Lord Jesus hadn't done any of that. He didn't baptize anyone with the Holy Spirit, not yet. And he didn't clear the proverbial threshing floor and gather the righteous like wheat and then burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. That was John's warning to the people. He says in chapter 3, verse 9, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. But Jesus never did any of that, not yet. Jesus' ministry was powerful, to be sure. You can see that in the way the people responded. And all the people recognized that there was a great prophet among them and that God had visited his people. But where was the justice that John was looking for? Where was the fire? Where was that wrath and that punishing of the evildoers? Why were the corrupt leaders of Israel still getting away with murder? And why was God's name and God's honor still being trampled on? It was obvious, yes, that God was at work in Jesus, but could Jesus still be the one that John had prophesied? So the reason then that John asked Jesus this question is because he was disappointed. As he languished in prison, he had been thrown in prison by Herod, he seems to have grown disillusioned with Jesus. The once bold and fearless prophet now sends messengers to Jesus and simply asks him, Are you the coming one? 
or do we look for another? In other words, Jesus, I don't know anymore. This isn't what I expected. I thought you were the one. Are you? Or was it supposed to be someone else? Now, notice that in our text, the question is actually written down twice. It's in verse 19, going back to Luke 7. It's in verse 19 and also in verse 20. So, beginning again at verse 19, John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Why does Luke take the effort to write that question down twice for us? Obviously, Luke doesn't include every single detail of every story. But here, he actually takes the time to repeat the question for us. He does this because it's such a critical question, not just for John the Baptist, but for everyone who hears this gospel, and especially because it's the famous prophet, John the Baptist, who's asking the question. So Luke wants to draw our attention to this question and to get us to start thinking about the question, is Jesus the one who was to come, or should we look for another? What is Jesus going to say? What arguments can he give for himself? And is this going to be the moment that he reveals himself to everyone? You see, Luke knows that this isn't just John the Baptist's question. It's the question of a lot of Jews of his time who were considering the claims of Christianity. And it might have been Theophilus' question. That's the man he's writing to. And it should be our question as well. Is Jesus the one who was to come? And if so, how could it possibly be that the Jewish people ultimately rejected and crucified that Jesus? Luke expects that that's going to be the reader's question, and he asks us to stop and consider the Lord Jesus' answer to this all-important question. Now, before we get to the Lord's answer, Luke quickly reminds us of what was happening so that we don't forget what's all going on here. In verse 21, it says, At that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind, he gave sight. So at that very hour that the disciples of John show up, amazing things are actually happening. And they all testify to the fact that that, uh, Jesus came from God, and the people recognize that. Realistically, the Lord Jesus could probably have said just about anything in that moment, and it would have carried an indisputable authority. Who's going to argue with a man who's performing miracles like that? Whatever claim Jesus makes, it will be backed up by the authority of God who gave him the power to do these works. And so that prepares us to hear his answer. And the Lord Jesus' answer is so important also for us today. Verse 22, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things that you've seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now this is amazing, isn't it? Jesus' answer is just amazing if you think about it. What kind of answer really is that? 
John already knows everything that the Lord Jesus just told him. That's exactly the report that the disciples carried to John. He already knows that. So what kind of answer is that? Can't the Lord Jesus just say, yes, I'm the Christ, or no, I'm not? What's his point? Why is he telling John the Baptist things that he already knows? Well, he's telling John the Baptist what he already knows because John the Baptist apparently hasn't made that connection between what he's hearing about what people are seeing and what Scripture says about the Savior who was to come. The language that the Lord Jesus uses here is unmistakable. This is scriptural, prophetic language taken almost verbatim from different parts of Isaiah. It's not a direct quotation of any one passage, but it's almost like a chorus of prophetic voices coming together and all of them indicate one thing, the day of the Lord has come. We read some of those passages earlier, and John, the wilderness prophet, would surely have had them memorized as he preached to the crowds out in the wilderness. And yet, amazingly, John the Baptist has somehow missed that part of Isaiah's prophecy and of the other prophets. He's hearing about the blind receiving their sight, the lame walking, the lepers being cleansed, the deaf hearing, the dead being raised up. And he's still asking, when are these prophecies going to start to be fulfilled so that I might know that Jesus is the promised one? And the Lord Jesus is telling him, it's happening right now, right before your very eyes, and you're completely missing it. John the Baptist had such a narrow focus on the kind of Messiah that he had prophesied with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he missed the fact that prophecy was being fulfilled in Jesus. So when Jesus sends his messengers back to John the Baptist, and sorry, when Jesus sends his messengers back to John the Baptist, he doesn't give him the direct answer that he's looking for because John the Baptist and the crowds and we too need to see it for ourselves from Scripture. John the Baptist had his mind set on a certain kind of Messiah, and the Lord Jesus directs him back to Scripture, back to the only place where certainty and truth can be found. The Lord Jesus could have told him, yes, I am the Messiah, and the things that you're waiting for, they're going to happen soon. But then he never would have given John the Baptist either the certainty that he needed or the correction that he needed. So he tells him, go back to the scriptures, John, the scriptures that you know so well, but consider them all, not just the ones that make sense to you, and let them all expand your vision, and they will testify that I am indeed the one that you are seeking. The Lord Jesus doesn't simply give John the answer that he's looking for. He gives him the perspective and the certainty that he needs. And it's the perspective and the certainty that we need also. Is Jesus the promised Savior? There's only one way to find the answer to that, by comparing him to the Word of God. Then the Lord Jesus says the words of verse 23. And let's all examine our hearts as we hear that warning this morning. The Lord Jesus concludes with a tender but a very serious warning to John the Baptist and to all of us who are reading this now. Let's start back up in verse 
22 again. So Jesus answered him and said to them, Go and tell on the, the things that you've seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor of the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. For John the Baptist and for us, this is the critical point. His doubts were not because of a lack of evidence that the Lord Jesus was the promised Savior, because the Lord Jesus, but it was because the Lord Jesus wasn't exactly the kind of Savior that he was expecting and hoping for. He was a Savior, he was waiting for a Savior who would bring justice, one who would punish all of his and all of God's enemies. And we can sympathize with him there, can't we? His heart was filled with the same plea that all believers feel when they experience injustice and suffer terrible things at the hands of unbelievers. His plea was, Lord, bring justice down on their heads. In the words of Psalm 69, pour out your indignation on them and let your burning anger overtake them. Add to them punishment upon punishment and may they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. These are righteous biblical emotions and they would in due time be satisfied. The Lord Jesus did, some decades later, pour out his wrath on the city of Jerusalem when the sin of that city had reached its fill. And for us too, he will one day bring full justice on the heads of our enemies, as long as they are his enemies. And yet John needed to realize that that is not God's only mission. And if it were, none of us would survive. The kind of Jesus that the Pharisees were waiting for, that Jesus never came because he never existed except in their imagination. But the Lord Jesus was also not exactly the kind of Messiah that John the Baptist was hoping for either, even though he knew the scriptures so well. The Lord Jesus had a much greater mission than the one that John the Baptist expected. And the one that, if we're honest with ourselves, we probably would have expected as well. He didn't come just to destroy the enemies of God that we would have identified. He also came to make a sacrifice for sin that somehow John had never really thought about and that we probably never would have thought about either. If we're honest, it's probably not a mission that we would have thought much of either if we were in his shoes. But the Lord Jesus came anyways, and he came for that purpose primarily, giving himself up so that John the Baptist and we too would not perish in that judgment that John the Baptist had prophesied. Yes, it was his mission to bring justice in due time, but also, surprisingly, though it never should have been surprising, to bring mercy and to bring hope and to bring healing, to give sight to those who were blind to see what they needed to see most of all, and to heal us of our greatest infirmity of all, the sickness of sin which plagues our hearts. For John the Baptist, this was a tender warning. Jesus is not harshly rebuking him, but soberly warning him and warning all of us, do not let your personal version of a Messiah, your personal opinion of what that Messiah would be like, 
Do not let that keep you from believing in the only true Savior whom God sent into this world. Do not assume that that Savior will be on your side, but make sure that you're on his side. God's word is the only standard by which we may measure our Savior, and blessed is he whose heart doesn't prevent him from believing in that Savior whom God sent. So the Lord Jesus points back to Scripture and reminds us not only to seize on that part of Scripture which conforms to the ideas that we already have or prefer to have, but to be honest students of Scripture with open hearts, willing to learn and to let our ideas conform to what Scripture teaches. It's one thing to have an idea in our heads of what God is like and then to go to Scripture and find confirmation of those ideas in Scripture. It's quite another to go humbly to Scripture expecting to learn and expecting to be taught and even challenged by Scripture. The one is relatively easy for God's Word to confirm what we already believe. That's easy. But it's much more difficult to let God's Word shape and inform what we believe. That takes deep humility and deep respect for the Word of God. And what he says there, and all of what he says there, should shape what we believe, especially when it comes to our Savior. What a strong and difficult warning, especially for a man like John the Baptist, who had given his whole life to the service of God, and who was even in prison for God's sake. We should notice our text never tells us how John the Baptist responded to Jesus' words. Instead of offering the conclusion to John's story, Luke actually leaves the Lord Jesus' answer open for all of us to consider. If John the Baptist ran the risk of stumbling over the Lord Jesus and becoming offended by him, well then we had better take this warning to heart as well. There is no doubt that Joe Clifford and the homosexual community in Manchester, they will be faced with the awful truth that Jesus is not at all who they thought he was. But beside them, there will also be many in the church who found themselves unable to accept Jesus unless he was willing to tolerate their sins that they found unacceptable to let go of, or who fancied him as any other kind of savior than the one that he actually is, reigning on the throne of heaven right now over Manchester and over Owen Sound. We can notice later in the gospel that the disciples also had their own version of a Messiah, their own ideas of who Jesus ought to be. At one point, Peter even rebukes the Lord Jesus for not having his mission line up with Peter's mission. They were hoping for a Messiah who would wage war against Israel's enemies, and they found it unacceptable and impossible that the Lord Jesus would suffer and die, and they couldn't understand what Jesus meant by saying it. By God's grace, they received God's correction. The Jews of Jesus' day, on the other hand, they found him unacceptable as well because he came to save them from their sin and not from the Romans. And because he called them to be humble and he called them to heartfelt repentance and not to man-made religion. And they ultimately rejected and even crucified the Savior. What about in our day? In this intervening period while we wait for the Lord Jesus' return, It's very easy, if we want, for everyone to imagine his or her own Lord Jesus. 
the social activist Jesus, the American Jesus, the feminist Jesus, the fundamentalist Jesus, the Jesus who tolerates my sin or who makes exceptions for me. But there is only one Lord Jesus Christ, and he is enthroned in heaven with power, and he will return. How many people, when they're confronted with the real Jesus, will find that man unacceptable and will take offense at him? So blessed are those who do not find in the Lord Jesus a stumbling block, something that they cannot accept, something that prevents them from believing in him. Blessed are those who hear him on his own terms and on the terms of God's word where his coming is promised. Blessed are those who embrace him as their only savior, the savior that perhaps they never expected or hoped for, but certainly never deserved. Blessed indeed, for in him is every blessing and every joy far more than we ever would have imagined or hoped for. Amen.